can you believe that leftists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar have only been in office for a year and a half? Dude, it feels so much longer than that. It feels like a decade. It does. And you know, and it's funny because they're facing uh, primary challengers <laughs> already. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be just because they've been in the news so much that even though it's only been a year and a half, you know, we see them all the time, we hear from them, we, we see them on video, and they've gotten so much attention that it just feels like a much longer period of time. It, it's true. I mean, the, the, like the shining lights in a, in a part, in a very bleak, bland, and unresponsive party. You know, but despite their efforts and the <laughs> efforts of Bernie Sanders in the Senate, uh, the Democratic Party is still run by a bunch of centrist goons uh, who are more eager to sit back and do the bare minimum to improve the lives of, of their constituents. It's really, really remarkable, isn't it? It's like they, they don't, they oppose, they oppose universal health care. They're against free college for everybody. And they're, you know, they say they, they give lip service to the Green New Deal, but they're not for the Green New Deal either. You've got a lot of pro-fracking Democrats still in office and like the new Green Deal. Right, the gr green dream or whatever. Oh, right. Green. I think she called it the green dream, which I mean, yeah, it's, it's California. It sounds like a strain of weed. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It does, right? The green dream or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's remarkable, like how sort of out of touch the Democratic Party is with the modern grassroots, and um, and yet how how powerful the party still is uh i mean it's it's quite possible that joe biden will will win in november the numbers look very good um but there's a risk that they may they, they may win the battle and ultimately lose the grassroots so lose the war for the future so uh, we'll we'll have to see well you know we've got an election coming up in new york on tuesday we do? the 23rd yep that's right <gasps> and it's in a time of protest of left wing activism so who knows what's going to happen so the voters who didn't participate in the uh, absentee ballot program will actually be going to the polls in person. Wear a fucking mask. Yes, please wear your goddamn mask. And don't leave it around your neck. Like, put it over your face. Come on. Oh, my God. They, or their nose is sticking out or whatever. I get it. They're hard to breathe in. But, like, fucking wear them. Fundamentally, just don't be a baby about it. Come on. This is a life-threatening virus. Just, like, do yourself and everyone else a big favor and just don't be a baby. Right. Welcome back to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. Uh, but we're not doing that today. We're talking about elections because elections matter. And the the outcomes of these elections could, could prove quite consequential on both state and national politics. So um, today we will be joined by Akela Lacey, a politics reporter for The Intercept, um, and she'll be talking about a couple of congressional races or a few congressional races with us. Uh, so with that, uh, sit back and enjoy an, another episode of Gilded Age. As always, I'm Walker Bragman. I'm Alex Koch. And I'm Mark Colangelo. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Right, and now for uh, the our main segment today, which is going to be about the congressional races in New York. Um, there's an election coming up on Tuesday, the 23rd, 
and uh, there's a lot of interesting races uh, for Congress for U.S. House, including several where uh, an incumbent, an sort of entrenched centrist incumbent is being challenged by uh, some exciting progressives, uh, and a couple others where there's an open seat, and there uh, there's a sort of wide range of characters who are running to, to fill that seat, including some leftist and progressive folks. Um, so we've got Akela Lacey on today. She is a politics reporter with The Intercept. Um, prior to that, she was the inaugural A.D. Barkin reporting fellow at The Intercept. Um, and before that, she worked at Politico, where she covered breaking news and immigration. Uh, she also produced the Politico playbook. Um, and uh, prior to that, she did international reporting at the Pulitzer Center. So thanks so much for coming on, Akela. Thank you for having me, Alex. All right. So um, let, let's get let's get to it. I think probably the most uh, newsworthy race, the, one of the more interesting ones, is New York's 16th Congressional District, uh, where the hawk Elliot Engel, um, a 73-year-old uh, head of the Foreign Relations uh, Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, I should say, is being challenged by... Uh, was being challenged by several folks. Now, um, Jamal Bowman, a former middle school principal, uh, has kind of risen to the top as the progressive consensus. Um, so this is uh, the 16th district. It, it covers the North Bronx and the southern half of Westchester County. It's about one third white and about one third black. Um, so it's it's a it's an interesting kind of diverse uh, region um, to uh, kind of set the uh, stage here. Bowman. Um, has a lot of great endorsements, Justice Democrats, DSA, Sunrise Movement, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, and actually the New York Times, interestingly enough. Um, meanwhile, but Engel... that was payback. Oh, right. Well, yeah, that we, we covered... <laughs> We covered Tom Watson's uh, tweet last week. He actually earned Tweet of the Week honors at, at Gilded Age. Um, so we, 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 uh, we appropriately roasted him um, last week for that. But yes, Tom Watson is probably, I mean, probably. Engel's got Tom Watson. He's so got Tom know, Watson in his corner. So, you know, that's the biggest endorsement he could ever hope for, Clinton being the second. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so he got so Engel has sort of all the all the establishment goons behind him: Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, are uh, Biden's BFF, Jim Clyburn. Uh, interestingly enough, the Congressional Black Caucus Pack um, is is endorsing Engel, not the Black Progressive um, Middle School Principal in Jamal Bowman, um, and also even I think. Uh, this is probably the funniest endorsement is end citizens united uh, a group that is purportedly uh you know it's a, it's a sort of political organization that wants to get rid of big money in politics wants to repeal the uh, get rid of the citizens united uh, supreme court decision that opened up the floodgates for a lot of money in politics but they also they also pressure candidates to reject corporate pack money um meanwhile elliot engel is one of the biggest recipients of defense industry corporate PAC money. So um, it beats me why they would have endorsed him, but I, they kind of seem to be um, uh, turning into an extension of the Democratic Party establishment itself. Um, but so uh, having introduced this race, <laughs> Kayla, um, just who is Elliot Engel and, and why is he such an important member of Congress? So Elliot Engel is uh, chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee. Um, he is, you know, known for being one of the the furthest, uh, you know, the most conservative Democrats when it comes to Israel in the caucus. Um, and he, you know, he's signed on to a couple of more progressive stances when it comes to foreign policy with regards to Saudi Arabia and Yemen in recent years you know, under pressure um, from the left, you know, both within his caucus and, you know, from constituents who have said for a long time that he is very absent in the district. Um, you know, he, 
he was against the Iran deal until a few years ago. He supported the Iraq war. Um, he's been a key player in some of the biggest calamities uh, that that the U.S. has been engaged in as far as foreign policy. And he's kind of he's caught, kind of gotten off the hook for it. Um, he he's you know, when you talk to him in person, he, you know, not to be ageist, but he's an older member of Congress. He's, he's relatively quiet unless he starts kind of like going on and, and rambling. And I don't, I think, you know, that has come out in recent gaffes in just the past month or so, you know, he said blatantly, you know, at this protest in the, in the Bronx after, uh, or a press conference after a night of protest against police brutality, he said, I wouldn't care if I didn't have a primary, um, which is the, the message that his opponents have been pushing this whole campaign. And then he kind of just gave it to them on a silver platter. Right. right? So he was, um, so he was, so, uh, yeah. he wanted to speak at the rally. Is that right? And he said, I wouldn't care about speaking if I didn't have this election. Uh, so I, I need to be public in, in my district cause I've been absent for like three months. <laughs> right. Yeah. He was trying to, he was trying to, I think, get uh, farther up in the order mm-hmm. to, to speak. Yeah. There were a bunch of people like, you know, jockeying to get to the, to the, uh, to the microphone and um, Ruben Diaz uh, Jr. was, was telling him, you know, telling everyone to calm down and angle <laughs> didn't realize that he was, I, I don't know. I, it, it appears that he didn't realize that he was on a hot mic and, and exactly. made his case. Yeah. And then Diaz said like, don't do this. Come on. Don't do this to me. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Which oh, was, God. I think, you know, what everyone probably was thinking at that <laughs> yeah, moment. Right. Yeah. Something about Angle that, that really struck me last year was um, Trump was getting ready to bomb Iran and um, Angle was interviewed uh, on CNN and he said, you know, okay, a full-blown war, yeah, it should require congressional approval, but, you know, for Trump just to, to strike Iran, uh, it's okay because, you know, we don't need to tie the president's hands. Uh, I mean, he's that eager for a, a right-wing zealot to bomb Iran um, that he he wants to, yeah. um, he doesn't want, he doesn't think that he actually, in his role, needs to actually approve that. He, he can just let the white It's actually funny. It. So he was interviewed when he changed his position on the Iran deal, like on, on the deal. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, we can do this, but we should just sanction the hell out of them. And it's like, it's still this, you know, he's, he, it's very clear. The subtext of that is that he knows that he's going to get shit for this for, sorry, I don't know if I can curse. He's yeah, going to yeah, get, totally. you know, hit over this forever How if he doesn't support the Iran deal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but at the end of the day, he doesn't, he doesn't actually care about the spirit of the deal, which is like fostering a better, whatever, a better relationship with that country. Like he still wants to keep these aggressive, you know, economic like strangulation tactics going, but the um, whole which point the rest of, it, of the caucus that, But our is, side yeah. of the bargain was we relaxed, we relaxed some of the sanctions so they will slow down and, and not enrich uh, uranium. Right. I mean, that, that, that would undermine yeah. the entire deal if we put a bunch of sanctions on them. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of outside spending on Engel's behalf lately. It's all kind of come pretty recently in this race as, as Bowman does better. There's actually a poll from data for progress. I believe uh, uh, several days ago where, where uh, Bowman was 10 points up. Bowman has been surging uh, a lot of attention on him. And so um, some of these outside groups, especially an interesting group called the um, democratic majority for Israel pack. And that's a super PAC that emerged um, in the, presidential contest they spent millions of dollars against bernie sanders who is jewish but he actually respects palestinians as people and so they they don't like him um but now they've come and they're backing elliot engel that's really not surprising no it's not i mean he, he's, he's i mean i dug up a i dug up a video of engel the other day where he's he's asked um he's on al jazeera and this is back in um 
This is back in 2007, and he's asked about an, the Israeli offensive that uh, and a bombing of um, of a public area that killed 200 children. And he's asked, like, what would disproportionate force be? And he said, well, it's I don't really know. You know, we use this word disproportionate, but I don't really know what that would mean in terms of Israel, like because they're being they're being shelled, and um, it's really it is the most. It is the most craven interview I think I have ever seen from any American politician. What would it take for you to decide that Israel was using disproportionate force at the moment? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's very easy uh, for, for people to uh, use that word disproportionate. Uh, quite frankly, um, I, I don't know what it means. Um, if, if I was a leader of a country and had uh, my uh, citizens uh, in jeopardy of missiles being fired uh, day in and day out, thousands and thousands and thousands of them, I think that uh, I would use whatever force it would be necessary uh, to protect uh, right. the interests of, of citizens. It is and a key a key issue. Let's see if we can get some sort of definition. I mean, right now, the figure we understand sounds of 200 Palestinian children dead. Do you think that's disproportionate, 300 perhaps? I mean, at the moment, we understand how Democrats are, at this moment, drafting a, a binding resolution in support of the Israeli offensive. So presumably then, 200 dead children isn't disproportionate. Would 300 dead well, children be disproportionate? Well, I, I don't know who, who you blame for the dead children. I mean, frankly, I, I would uh, at least equally blame uh, Hamas for building their bomb factories uh, in civilian areas where children live. But Congressman, do you have evidence then that all these children were killed because Hamas had built bomb shelters in their vicinity? Well, I think we I think we have evidence uh, pretty substantially uh, that uh, that Israel has uh, has destroyed uh, a lot of the uh, facilities uh, to to make weapons of terror and bombs. Right, very demonic evidence I'm, right now that all the civilians and it has been mainly civilians we understand who've been killed in market squares, apartments, as food markets, and so on, uh, were targeted because Hamas assets were in the area. You're demanding that evidence because presumably otherwise these well, would be war crimes. Look, uh, unfortunately, I, I think that in times of war, unfortunately, innocent civilians get killed, and it's 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 terrible. Yes, but it's not with precision-guided munitions, but, mostly supplied by the United States. It has to be uh, has to be remembered. You are demanding the evidence that all of these civilians who are being killed, there's some 200 I, I, children so far, have been killed because they were amidst Hamas assets. No. You can get the cockpit videos, presumably. You're asking for those. I'm 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 demanding uh, that Hamas stop using terrorism as a as a tool to to have a Palestinian state. So this, the DMFI pack has, by my count, spent $1.4 million so far backing Engel and attacking Jamal Bowman. So, Akela, you've written a couple pieces on them and then their connections to other groups. Can you talk a little bit about who they are? Yeah, so DMFI pack is run by, uh, well, DMFI is run by Mark Melman, um, who is a huge, you know, well-known strategist inside the Beltway. Um, they we've done reporting on their spending against Bernie Sanders um, before Iowa ads, you know, the first ads ever attacking him by name in either of his presidential campaigns, talking about his heart attack that got a lot of attention. Um, and then they soon, you know, after a lot of backlash from that, they soon stopped being active in, in the presidential campaign and and set their sights on uh, on this angle primary. Um, they got a hundred thousand dollar contribution on May 27th from Americans for Tomorrow's Future, which is a Republican super PAC uh, or a Republican PAC. And, and um, they 
soon after DMFI spent uh, on these ads uh, and digital mailers and, and phone banking hitting hitting Bowman. Um, one of the ads that came out was, you know, villainizing him for having back taxes. Uh, there was That's a horrible. lot of, you know, he put out a really strong statement, you know, addressing the the insensitivity to that, the fact that, you know, you shouldn't be criminalizing people for debt. It's also yeah, and it was, it was $2,000. Yeah. It wasn't like he was, yeah. he was withholding a ton of money from the government. Like it was, it was a lot of people have back taxes and $2,000 is a pretty common amount to have as a back tax. Right. And even Engel's campaign, I mean, you know, they, you know, as required by law, they're not allowed to coordinate with any of mm -hmm. these PACs in a private, uh, a local private Facebook group. They wrote the campaign wrote that they had asked the, that the ad be taken down. Um, so that, was that was pretty wild. I, I'm not exactly sure like what the aftermath of that was. Um, but yeah, that caused a huge stir. Um, and it, DMFI is also pretty intertwined with APAC during the Sanders, um, the Sanders ads, we reported on how they APAC basically set up a situation where members could contribute to DMFI and have it count as part of their, their membership contributions that, you know, right. they get elevated tiers or, or other benefits. Um, and DMFI denied that they had any knowledge of that. APAC denied that they had any knowledge of it. Um, there are a number of board members who um, have contributed to the group. Like it, there's, you know, there's, there's many, many data points that show that they are in fact, you know, related in a number of ways um, that neither of them choose to admit. And the other interesting point about this is that, you know, Democratic Majority for Israel, the ads that they ran against Sanders and against Engel have no mention of Israel whatsoever. Right. Um, they are just, they're inserting themselves in these races where there's a clear policy angle that they are, have an interest in, but they know that talking about that is not going to go over well with voters. <laughs> right. And it's not just DMFI PAC. There's a couple other recently formed uh, political groups that are also spending on Engel's behalf. Um, I believe, uh, I, I'm not sure if you wrote about them, Akela, but um, you probably did because you guys are just all over it with these primaries. So um, yeah, what's up with those two? Yeah, so Paris Practical and Avacy are two dark money groups that um, made their first filings earlier this month, and they're spending to back angle. Um, David Crone is their, is, uh, their signatory for both of those uh those groups. He's the former chief of staff to Harry Reid, um, former Democratic Senate Majority Leader from Nevada. Um, Paris has spent $180,000 so Jeez. far backing Angle, and Avacy has spent $176,800. Um, at the time that we ran the story on the GOP PAC money, they had raised 128,000. And then 15 minutes after we published the story, they spent, they filed another IE report for 57,000 um, in support of Angle. Oh yeah. And one, so, one, one wrinkle about David Crone, um, just a lovely, lovely guy. He, um, he praised Donald Trump's executive order that enabled uh, the government to withhold funding from universities that don't crack down on their own students' free speech rights to advocate boycott divestment, uh, boycott divestment and sanctions against Israel, uh, BDS. So, so that's where, that's kind of where this guy stands. One of the mailers that was sent out in the race, um, from, you know, it's, it's appears that it's from Avacy. It shows, uh, an image of Israel with the West Bank already annexed, mm -hmm. um, you know, promoting angle on the back. It says that Bowman, it, it's a quote from him talking about how he's going to stand up for Palestinian rights um, and putting that in a negative light uh, as something that they don't want. Right. Fra framing him as, anti as anti-Semite, as an anti-Semite. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Without saying, and also I remember one of those ads. They're they going around Twitter because uh, someone had had posted a bunch of the flyers that they got, and one of them I think on the front said it was it was a quote saying like, "We need to hold the Israeli government accountable." 
like I'm like that isn't that good? Like it's a foreign government. Like aren't we supposed to be doing that? Like, but of yeah. course, like the constituents that they're sending this to are people who don't think that that's a priority apparently. Um, so it's a pretty messy, pretty messy race. Um, I don't know if there's been really any besides the Day for Progress poll. I'm not, I haven't really seen a whole lot of recent polling. I feel like it kind of could. I don't know. What do you think, Akela? It seems like it definitely has potential for for an upset, um, but I feel like it's so hard to predict these things uh, with these kind of like regional and you stories. know. At the end of May, I was very much like this could be this could go either way. The last month, it really seems like Bowman has a solid chance. Um, the fact that you know the left consolidated behind him the same day that the GOP PAC money came out and Hillary Clinton endorsed uh, Engel, you know that's a Clinton endorsement is just a wild, wild. <laughs> gift to Jamal Bowman at this point. Like yeah. it's it's just you can't you can't write it, the you know, any death. better than that for him. They've raised uh, you know, a massive amount of money, like more than they raised in all of 2019 and in just the past month or so. Um, they're they're surging, you know, Bowman is on Twitter every day dancing to, you know, right. like songs and just like, you know, you can like criticize him for that. But he the the spirit of the campaign is very much like this has been a windfall for us, you know. The Atlantic story about Engel having left the district for the entire coronavirus pandemic. You know the comments it. that we already talked about the GOP PAC money. It's it's funny that uh, Hillary Clinton and the Republicans are aligned on a on a candidate. Yeah, it's just a, yeah. I mean, it's really uh, it's quite telling. <laughs> I would say. Stay tuned. Now a word from our sponsors. Do you like stuff and dislike other stuff? Do you find yourself wishing things were marginally better? But let's not get too crazy. Join us. We're Democrats. Our candidates come in a wide range of colors and creeds, often bald, focus group tested, rhetoric and sensible industry accepted solutions. We're here for you to project whatever the hell you want onto us, as long as you're a corporate lobbyist. We're barely passable. Now offering neoliberalism in white, brown, black, and Asian Pacific Islander. Let's go on to another exciting race. Uh, this is New York uh, 17, uh, where uh, a number of candidates, uh, including Mondaire Jones, are are running uh, to to fill an open seat. Uh, the 17th district covers Rockland County, parts of Westchester County. Um, you got White Plains in there, and the longtime incumbent, incumbent uh, Nita Lowy, uh, recently announced her entire retirement. I believe she's been there since 1989. Um, so this led to a bit of a free for all, and many Democrats were concerned that. This chaos would end would result in uh, state senator David Carlucci winning, and a lot of people were really concerned about that. So, Akela, um, I was hoping you could shed some light on why David Carlucci is so concerning to so many Democrats. Yeah, so um, Carlucci is a Democratic state senator who, within his first week in office, uh, announced that he and three other uh, senators were leaving the Democratic caucus and starting the Independent Democratic Conference, which would go on to, you know, purposely block, uh, you know, progressive policy 
priorities and other pieces of legislation um, and work with Republicans to do so. Uh, that uh, the IDC disbanded under pressure from the left and progressives in 2018. Um, a number of uh, you know now well-known state legislators rode in on that wave, um, and you know the IDC is now a very much you know that label is a scarlet letter for for people who care about what the, yeah. the legislator is doing right now. Um, Carlucci obviously has been able to kind of like act like that never happened. You know, he he's done pretty well for himself considering the pu the publicity of his record and the fact that, you know, most candidates in this race don't have a very public record in office, um, it, at least in, in, in legislative office. Um, and so, you know, with someone like Carlucci being able to kind of, you know, pivot to these these criminal justice priorities in the, just the last couple of years, um, you know, get backing from from a number of, of local officials who are tied to the machine that he has been so influential in upholding. Um, and I think, you know, the, the few internal polls that took place showed him leading. There's been some polls, um, you know, re in recent weeks from Data for Progress and then also public policy polling that was commissioned by four local Democratic parties um, because the, the polls that had been out that, that far, like, didn't really tell people much. Um, would show that Mondaire Jones is is in the lead, and then I believe Farkas and Carlucci are, or Farkas and I think Schleifer are tied behind her um, at fourteen percent. Um, and then the the bigger the more the more significant number from the polls in that race, including the last one, is that the number of undecided voters is still relatively mm -hmm. high. The Data for Progress poll it was thirty eight. The new poll it's down to twenty four percent. And I think that has to do, you know, they're, they're having debates just like every other primary. There's debates multiple times a week. Um, people are picking up more and more coverage. And so I think Mondaire, that's helped Mondaire pull, Mondaire Jones pull ahead, um, who is the leading progressive candidate um, right now. Yeah, and I definitely want to talk a little bit about Mondaire. Um, one more quick question on Carlucci, though. So he, he had, um, I think he has the PBA's Endorsement Police Association, as well as tons of donors, donations from these law enforcement groups. Has has that has has the like optics on this changed after George George Floyd for him? Has he like kind of step steps back from being the law and order candidate, or is he uh, and tried to announce some of these things, or is he just um, stand stand strong as the law and order candidate? So um, he. So he he signed on to this bill the first time it was introduced last year, but recently signed on again to a, a state law that that would repeal 50A, um, which is this this law that helps collect protect um, police from uh, you know accountability and shields their records on misconduct from public view. Um, so he re-signed onto that in the beginning of June, uh, around the same time that this news that the PBA had endorsed him came out. Um, a Queen's Eagle. Um, managing editor had tweeted out, you know, screenshots. It's, it's a private uh, website, so you can't see it unless you have access mm -hmm. to the website. We reached out to Carlucci's campaign for, you know, we were working on this story for weeks. They never responded. The PBA never responded. Another candidate on that slate, um, Ruben Diaz Sr., got the PBA endorsement, came out with it publicly. That lends credibility to these other candidates who are on the same list, including Michelle Caruso Cabrera in AOC's district. Um, so I think it, you know, he... That to me, I don't have I don't have like you know concrete yeah. evidence, but that to me shows that like they're trying not to embrace this right now because they know they'll look bad, but at the same time they can't denounce it. Um, Mondaire Jones wants him to reject the endorsement and and return the law enforcement money, but you know they can't move forward on that unless he comes out with it publicly. Yeah. So let, let's talk 
quickly about the other two candidates that rose to the kind of top four there, and then we'll get into Monday or Jones. So uh, Evelyn Farkas, uh, she worked in, the, in Obama's Defense Department. She's got significant support from the Democratic establishment, uh, including people like John Kerry. Uh, and she contends that the Kremlin is working against her. Um, I've heard recently, which sounds familiar. Um, She's so, a big celebrity over there, actually, in Russia. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be shocked. Um, I was hoping, uh, Akela, you could tell us a little bit more about some of uh, the troubling donors that, that she uh, she's receiving funds from. Yeah, so uh, Evelyn Farkas um, has gotten support from, you know, Democratic establishment as well as prominent Republicans like John Negroponte, um, you know, Bush's chief of intelligence, former ambassador to Iraq. Yeah, so the Iraq um, border, can- the UN, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Ken Duberstein, Reagan's former chief of staff, um, you know, defense industry giants and and executives. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there are a, a lot of lobbyists. There's also a five thousand uh, dollars contribution from a Republican PAC that her campaign maintains is not a Republican PAC. Um, she's denied that she has taken that money. Um, Farkas. um is kind of the favorite of like the beltway consultancy, you know, the establishment both on on both sides um, of the aisle. Um, Sorry. What'd you say? PMC is the professional uh, managerial class. Got to get that PMC vote. If you're, if you're going to run a democratic primary. Yeah. Um, And yeah, she's worth between uh, 565,000 and $1.5 million, according to her most recent um, disclosures. She's not the candidate who there's there's two other candidates who are very heavily self-funding their campaign. She is not one of those candidates. Um, But yeah, I mean, this race is just wild. And also, you know, the fact that Nita Lowy dropped out, you mentioned this already, but the fact that, yeah, that that it's just an open race and and um, people are just throwing money around and it's it's pretty insane let's jump to one more of those uh candidates that is throwing a lot of money around right now adam slifer right uh he's a former prosecutor from california and uh, i I think as of now he spent more money than all the other candidates combined he strikes me as kind of the bobby newport if you've seen parks and rec of this race or maybe maybe bloomberg um you know i don't (laughs) I'm going to say this and you can put it in the podcast if you want, but I probably shouldn't say it, but they Schleifer recently put out an ad against Fargus that I literally was like, this is like a Parks and Rec ad. <laughs> like it was like, so just like, you know, the, the sound effects like boink, like hit it, like this, the GOP elephant, like flopping over yeah, in, no, the, in the it's, screen. It's, it's just absurd. like, Trump's Washington is working for special interests, not people. And so is Evelyn Farkas. Her largest donor is a Republican PAC. Her campaign is bankrolled by corporate PACs and lobbyists. And she's taken tens of thousands of dollars from the defense industry. So how will she stand up to Donald Trump? Democrats are backing Adam Schleifer. He rejects corporate PAC money. He'll hold Trump accountable. He'll build on Obamacare, reduce health care costs, and continue his work for justice and equality. I'm Adam Schleifer, and I approve this message. <laughs> so he he spent more than $4 million on, on the race um, so far. He is the son of a pharmaceutical billionaire. Did you say $4 million? Yes. Yeah. Which is more than all yeah. the other candidates combined. And there's, I think, seven yeah. candidates at this point. Yeah. We could probably use some campaign uh, finance reform, I think, in this case. Uh, so his yeah, one donor, actually, I, I, I threw this quote. He's one donor. Yeah, his, uh, um, he has maybe a few, a few donors mom? beyond his self-funding stuff. But said uh, uh, Jeffrey Gurl is a real estate develop, de- developer. Uh, he said if, if 
I donated to Adam Schleifer, but if he wins, it shows that you can buy an election. <laughs> Interesting. My take on Schleifer's campaign is that he really just wants to fight against like the other candidates in the race. Like, I don't think that he thinks that he really has a chance of winning at this point, yeah. given the state of play, but like he has the money to spend and he's, in, he's put this much skin in the game. And like, you know, him and Farkas have really been going at it in the past couple of weeks because they're kind of in that second, their number two seat. Um, and so that I think they're just, you know, he's like, well, I'm here to play <laughs> and I'm going to keep spending money. One, so. one may love to see it. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Um, so, so that brings us to Mondaire Jones. Um, if Mondaire wins, he'd be the first black gay congressman. Uh, and as I think you, you mentioned, uh, Kayla, I think the most recent shows, uh, polls are showing him in the first, in first place or, or thereabouts. Uh, and you've written an article arguing that he's the best shot. Um, so maybe you could tell us uh, a little more about Mondaire Jones recent endorsements and what you think his, his odds are. Yeah. So this is, you know, the fact that this is an open seat makes it even more likely that someone could just pull ahead and, and, and get in, um, particularly Jones, who has had a similar surge, you know, not as much coverage, not as much fun, as much money as, well, not, not as much money, but not as much coverage as the Bowman race, but, um, you know, he has, he's, made a really impressive surge in, in recent months. Um, he was leading on, on talking about criminal justice reform since he launched his campaign. And that put him in a, in a much better state, you know, to adapt and respond to the, the, the protests that are happening everywhere right now. Um, a couple of other, you know, Carlucci had been, you know, trying to pivot on that for a little bit. Um, Buckwald had been quiet on it, but pretty his record was pretty good in the assembly. Fargus, I believe they put up a criminal justice platform, you know, a couple days, uh, you know, late late in May, um, and they didn't really. Ha she wasn't talking about that, um, and so he he also has a you know has is pushing for a number of other progressive policies that, that other people aren't pushing for medicare for all green new deal like that whole package of things um but you know that's not really what sets people apart in these races anymore especially when it's become so easy to just like talk the talk which is what a lot of these candidates are doing um and so i think you know part of mondaire his personal story the fact that he grew up on food stamps the fact that he you know ended up going to you know having the privilege to go to stanford and and you know work and and work as an attorney and and deciding to run for congress at the beginning it was a huge long shot like i think that's what we're seeing with so many of these races especially with this simmering discontent you know with coronavirus and everything else like that's a huge boon at first when we were covering this it seemed like it was going to be a huge you know disadvantage to many progressive candidates as far mm -hmm. as like campaigning <laughs> virtually and stuff, but I feel like the tail end is coming back around and actually pushing a lot of them forward. I think that's what I'm, we're seeing with, Proving out with a lot Jones. Of the, the things that progressives have been talking about for a while now it's sort of accelerated the need for it. Exactly, because everyone is like, where were you, you know, six months ago when we were talking about, you know, support for essential workers or, or you know, healthcare that isn't tied to your job? Um, and so hopefully people are seeing that a lot of people weren't just you know. Yeah, but only during a crisis. We can't possibly let these policies, you know, continue into the future. Um, but we have to acknowledge that the left has been correct about these policies. Uh, and, and if they had been in place, then um, we would be in a much better situation. 
Yeah, how fucking hard is it for you know to acknowledge Medicare for all? Like, would yeah, but would have been a, a Joe doesn't want to do it. He doesn't. He still won't acknowledge that we need it. Um, Think of the insurers. Yeah. What <laughs> are they going to do? <laughs> Those poor, poor bastards. But that I mean, but that's 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 the irony, right? Is they I mean, the, the people who work at these companies um, can can either go and work for the government to do a, a much better job of what they're kind of doing, I guess, um, or they can, uh, or if they are unemployed, they can still have fully covered health care because we'll have Medicare for all. I, I've I've just reached the point um, where like I, I get calls from like Democratic campaigns, and it's like, how, does your candidate support Medicare for all? Oh, no. Oh, they, but they do support oh, expanding access. All right. No, I'm sorry. I've got to go. <laughs> There's nothing I enjoy more than getting than than hanging up phone calls with the uh, with the uh, campaign with staffers who, who are pitching candidates who don't support Medicare for all. Because if you can't support that basic policy today in wake in the wake of covid, like, you know, you, you don't have any you, you don't have any guts and you, your your interest is not is clearly not just the public good i mean this just shows the failure of a two-party system and i think as aoc said a little while ago you know if we had a parliament then she and joe biden would not be in the same party at all but because of this dumb system we have people who are completely ideologically different who have to somehow work together on legislation and that's why we get everything gets dumbed down and watered down um and a single-payer option in 2009 um was put off the table by like a conservative uh i think it was it was max baucus a conservative democratic senator i mean he was he got to do it. What do you do, what do you think the odds of uh, are that progressives will be able to to win these seats or, or beat out incumbents? And if they don't, does the Democratic Party then, uh, if it wins in November, does it does it win the win the battle and lose the war, like lose an entire generation? Um, yeah. So I think you know with these, what are we talking about here? Like four races. Like I think probably. Two, two or three of these progressives have a pretty good chance of of getting someone in. The problem is once they get to Congress, like they need so many more people to actually have the weight that they need to pull on these bills. And like you know, we saw the we saw Pramila Jayapal get you know bowled over in negotiations for coronavirus relief stuff. And the fact that you know it's it's going to take a huge, it's going to take years of this, like cycles and cycles of this to actually get to the place where, you know, you don't have Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer writing bills behind closed doors. Obviously this was a, this was a special situation. No one was physically in the Capitol, but that this isn't that far off from how a lot of other fights go on, you know, in Congress. And so I think like, yeah, it's, this is going to be awesome, but like you see AOC standing as this kind of more and in, in a sea of people who, you know, the progressive caucus is massive. There are lots of members who are also in other, other caucuses and don't as you know, they're, they're working on getting a better internal mechanism for whipping votes and, and pressuring, pushing back against leadership on this stuff, but they're not there yet. Um, I think this, the, what happened with coronavirus, like set off alarm bells for a lot of staffers that like, I had not really heard being that concerned about the weakness of the CPC, but it's, I think there's a sea change happening. And I think at the end of the day, even if they they win all these races that we're talking about right now and they take the White House, like we're still going to be talking about Medicare for all and stuff like we're not going to get it. Tomorrow. Well, right. well, this is yeah. this is sort of what I'm getting at. Like if the yeah. Democratic Party wins in November and they have a big wave election, like that's great. That'll breathe new life into the party. Maybe 
embolden them on, on a couple things, but they're still not going to be, uh, Biden administration is still not an ally on Medicare for all. And that is supported by a majority of millennials. I mean, Democrat and, and Gen Zers. And what happens when you have a political party that is out of step with what the next generations are demanding? Like, can yeah. it survive? Can it survive? I mean, obviously the Republicans are, you know, it, they own their, their sort of like, we don't like this. Yeah. We, we want to do as much damage as possible. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, but Democrats are sort of in this weird middle ground, right? Where they, where they claim to be on the side of, of, of young progressives, but don't actually support anything that they want. And that doesn't seem to me, at least, to be a sustainable situation. And I was wondering what. No, I totally agree. Um, and I think you know, I in, at my most cynical point, I the the data point that I couldn't get out of my head on this was the split between younger and older voters for for Biden and Sanders. Like, and that for me, you know, you can draw a lot of conclusions from that. We we need a lot more data, but yeah, it. The trend is that, you know, as younger people are getting more and more involved in politics, but they're joining these groups that are have no affiliation and also are extremely antagonistic of the Democratic Party. That's great for the left. Those groups are fighting to have more uh influence over policy, you know, like Sunrise has, has bowled over, you know, people for, you know, the past since 2018 uh, on the national level. And so I think like, it's just going to be a matter of like, who is taking up the most air and, and whether, what Democrat, how Democrats are going to let that happen. I don't think that at, at, I think maybe six months ago, I thought, you know, young people are just not going to vote and like, they're going to say, screw you to Democrats. And like, you guys pick up the mess and have Trump for another four years, you know, you asked for it basically. But I think especially with COVID and all these protests and like people being able to kind of, you know, I don't want to, I, I hate making a moral judgment on voting and not voting. Like I have friends who have different opinions on it. I go back and forth myself, but like, I think a lot of people, at least since the past few months have said to themselves, like, okay, even though we hate this, like we're going to, we know that we don't have another choice. And so I feel like that, and maybe I'm just being super optimistic now because I, I want things to be better, but I think, yes, the, the party is going to lose these people, but that doesn't mean they're not going to vote. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what that means. Yeah, the, the most so, compelling, um, campaign slogan I think I've seen for Biden and, and there's t-shirts so you can buy now it just says settle for Biden and it is um <laughs> and it's very much this acknowledgement that yeah it sucks but like Trump is he's just the more immediate existential threat like it's like continued vanished decline versus like just spectacular but like this but the last time I think the last time in our history when we had uh both political parties sort of very out of step with um, with the, the sort of activist, the radical activist, uh, the demands, was really like before the Civil War. I mean, you had the Whigs who, who they, they formed around free silver, but then you had uh, the issue of slavery became like the you couldn't ignore it. And um, you had the Democrats who were obviously the, the very pro-slavery party, and then the Whigs didn't take a position on Seems it. Seems like we're and, and still rehashing some of those so, issues a century and a half later. Oh, well, yeah. But it does it does seem to me, at least, that the Democratic Party is sort of in a similar situation that the Whigs were in, that they that they don't they don't really want to take a stand on on some of these uh, on, on like inequality, which I think is probably the biggest issue, the most defining issue of the day. 
Um, and they're not willing to take a stand one way or another. Like they want, they sort of have one hand in the in the cookie jar, the corporate cookie jar. Yeah, I mean, and and look at hand, look at like, look at the House like police, or maybe it was the Senate police legislation. I mean, it barely does anything. Um, right. But I, I've been saying for a while now, and it's easy for me to say from the commentariat class. Um, but like, I think the the real leftists in Congress should form a left caucus, a much smaller. Because like you were saying, Akela, you know, the the congressional caucus, uh, progressive caucus, is massive. They're not going to really do a whole lot um, to combat Pelosi and the establishment. Uh, and some of them are probably pretty connected to the establishment. I think a, a smaller left caucus, kind of. I mean, I hate to say it, but kind of like the early Freedom Caucus um, that voted together. Um, and that, you know, this would probably start with the squad, I would imagine, and, and add, add, maybe there'll be some new folks um, coming own in. that. When I saw Zephyr Teachout speak uh, years ago, she said, I'm a student of the Tea Party, you know, like their their method of organizing and, and overrunning the establishment is... Uh, yeah, and they followed. basically hijacked the party, like, to this day. I mean, Trump, I guess, is, you know, he, he was, he's not a Tea Party guy, but he's kind of the logical extension of, of a lot of the Tea Party. And, and now you see, like, I mean, a couple months ago when the activism was on the right, not on the left, and they were going to these state houses and demanding haircuts, um, like, the Tea Party groups were were already mobilized. Like, they, they were already connected after years of working together. So they were able to just get out there really quickly um, you know, and, and, and protest, um, you know, their right to uh, grooming services. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your casts, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you'll get access to premium episodes, which will often be interviews with politicians, candidates, reporters, authors, and professors. So if you can, please pitch in at patreon.com slash gilded So Kayla, I did want to ask you about the, the congressional primary in uh, New York's ninth congressional district, uh, where the incumbent is Yvette Clark. Uh, she's sort of, she was an original co-sponsor of the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, but she's sort of, but, but if you look at her donors, it's a lot of corporations, she's taking a lot of money from Raytheon and um, pretty much every, every corporation you could, th- like every major corporate interest you could think of, she's, she's got a... Uh, you know, she, she gets money from. She's currently facing two progressive challengers. Um, there's Adam Bunkadeco, who ran last time uh, against her and did fairly well. He, he nearly won. Um, and then there's Democratic Socialist uh, uh, Isaiah James, who I've interviewed a couple times and is one of the more compelling speakers, uh, I think, I think uh, out there today running for office. But he hasn't raised as much, nearly as much money as Adam Bunkadeco. And doesn't have the same list of uh, endorsements. Bunkadeco has Zephyr Teachout behind him, um, and and a num- indivisible a number of other a number of other groups. So uh, I was hoping that you could give us your impressions of that race and sort of explain it to our listeners. Yeah. So this is a this is another really interesting one, particularly because Yvette Clark has more prominent, well, not prominent, but more public uh, support from, you know, allies in Congress, not only like backing her, but like trying to get her challengers to get out of the race. Um, that happened last cycle with Adem and and again, you know, before this cycle, um, he's raised more money than he, he raised against her last year when he came very close to beating her. She woke up a lot after her last primary challenge, um, hence, you know, signing on to these, these major pieces of leftist legislation. Um, but, you know, 
she's she's gotten praise for that, but it isn't lost on people in her district or uh, you know volunteers for other campaigns that this was largely a, a function of her almost losing her seat. Um, and so while it's great that she's you know trying to do these things, she is still in the pocket of you know you know, or re- more more accurately, a lot of real estate donors are in her pocket. You know they're 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 bolstering the the bulk of her campaign contributions. Um, one really interesting anecdote about this race is that Isaiah, when he ran against her, it was after he, you know, he was at a meeting that was organized by Brooklyn Indivisible in, 2000, or in 2019. And he asked uh, Rep Clark why she signed on to a 2017 letter asking Amazon to come to the city. And she told him that she didn't sign on to it. And like, it was, it, there was never any clarification about like what, like she did sign the letter. It's unclear whether she forgot or, or misspoke. Um, but that, you know, he says that that, pr- that um, pushed him to run against her. Um, he has a lot of those moments in this race, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He, he asked Bunkadeco about the PBA lobbyists who gave him money, uh, you know, didn't get an answer there either. Yeah. And so he hits, he hits Bunkadeco on, you know, having, having ties to, you know, venture capitalist donors like Bradley Tusk, um, having, having support from the real estate industry, um, you know, last cycle, uh, Adem, they, they, you know, gave back that money after the campaign had ended, I believe. Um, and he's, uh, he's addressed that and, and said that he, you know, the campaign, it was a, it was an oversight and they, they are taking it more seriously this time, but that's, that's a big thing for, for Isaiah. And, and particularly because he's a DSA member, um, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. He, he didn't, he hadn't raised a ton of money and then he came, he became sick with coronavirus and was in the hospital. Um, they only ended up raising $7,000 last quarter. I think he has like 20, 20, a little over 20,000, 21,000 right now. Um, and so it's, it's another situation where, you know, we're seeing in a lot of these primaries, like people are getting concerned that the challengers are going to eat into each other's votes. And then, you know, even though they might be fighting for broadly the same goals, they're going to end up help helping their challenge, their, the incumbent that New York nine is the only race out of the, the ones that we've covered so far, where I actually think that's probably still um, an issue. We thought it would have been an issue in Angle's race, but um, Andam Gabregiorgis dropped out and endorsed Bowman um, and has been, you know, supportive of him, you know, ever since he decided to drop out. I know that was that was an issue, though, for them prior to that. So the other race that I wanted to talk about is New York's 12th district, um, which is represented by Carolyn Maloney, who has been in office in Congress uh, since 1993. Through uh, they they changed her district uh, in in uh, 2013. Uh, she used to be New York's 14th district, if I'm not mistaken, and then it became uh, the, she represented the 12th. Um, but Maloney, you've done you've done some some recent reporting on Maloney that she that she has a, a record of being uh, tough on crime, and that her opponents uh, are hitting her on that. Uh, her she's got two two opponents who are who are challenging her again from the left. Um, and I've, I've spoken to one of those, uh, uh, Lauren Ashcraft, um, and uh, but I have not talked to Siraj, uh, talked to uh, Siraj Patel. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about this race? Yeah. So Carolyn Maloney, um, you know, she was uh, elected to the New York City Council in 1986. Um, she's had a long career uh, in elected office. Um, I. It's unclear to me that her criminal rec- her criminal justice record has has been um, 
you know, elevated before, obviously this stuff comes, this stuff comes up when people are in primary challenges. Um, so just to mention Siraj Patel ran against her last cycle. Um, he's also running against her. He, he lost by 8,644 votes last time. Um, he's a hotel executive. His family has a hotel business, an Obama campaign alum, a New York university professor, um, running from Medicare for all and a green new deal. He's raised um, 544130 so far. Um, you mentioned Lauren Ashcroft, Dem Socialist, stand-up comedian. She's worked in affordable housing and financial and utility assistance for low-income families and focused on disability rights in her campaign. She's raised 142972 um, Maloney uh, <laughs> has boasted things like... Uh, developing Manhattan's first ever tactical narcotics team um, that she claims arrested more than 2,000 people, um, supporting Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill, uh, which, you know, pushed mandatory minimums. And Maloney herself also voted for a bill that would give $100 million in block grants to states that imposed uh, five-year mandatory minimums on uh, violent crimes involving guns. Um, even while she criticized it on the floor, she voted for it. Um, that was in 2000. In 1987, she voted to strengthen uh, criminal penalties for juveniles who commit violent crimes. Um, more recently, she suggested that Ray Kelly, who was uh, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg's police commissioner, um, be, you know, he would be a great choice for Trump uh, as director of the FBI. Um that was a pretty wild claim, you know. As you as you just mentioned, Alex, he was a he was involved in stop and frisk, broken windows policing uh, styles that have largely been debunked, not only as ineffective but <laughs> largely harmful, um, particularly to Black and Brown people. Um, so those are things that both um, Siraj and Lauren are, are focusing on. Also, I, I want to mention I haven't seen this ad that Carolyn Maloney put out, but there's an ad that uh, you know attacks Siraj, calling him creepy for using, talking about his use of Tinder um, as part of his campaign. Um, Siraj wrote a Medium post explaining you know the racist undertones of of that and and how you know obviously not as a black man he can't empathize with it but that he understands that it's offensive also during this time how it's just tone deaf um so that's basically the state of play there carolyn maloney is going to be really tough to unseat i mean i i don't really know what the chances are that siraj will beat her especially you know votes have already started people are mailing in ballots um as we speak in new york so um this is very much already underway um and there hasn't been a ton of coverage of this primary, particularly because of Maloney's, you know, her relative safety um, in the district. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting given that her her record had not been, it hadn't. I you know, some people would have seen this as egregious previous prior to six months ago. It's obviously all the more egregious now, given like what's going on in the country. Um, but she, out of the the races we've covered, she probably has the mm. the safest chance of of not being. You know, I, uh, I noticed, sorry, Walker, I, I noticed that um, DMFI Pack actually spent a little money on her the other day. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. I think it was about 30 or 40,000 for, for mailers. I'll have to check. But yeah, it's interesting. She, she's uh, they're, they're coming to the rescue of all these beleaguered incumbents. She, she also, she gave herself a significant amount of money uh, at the end of last month, I think, uh, which is interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's she also we, this is in the story, but, you know, apparently she I, I was too young to know about this when it happened, but she was planning to run for the Senate and then said the N word in mm. public. And, you know, that apparently torched her Senate campaign. She was re, she was relaying a story where someone else said it to her, but she just like said it. Um, and so I you know, that was a while ago, but, you know, I had never heard of it. <laughs> it obviously didn't keep her from continuing to get reelected in Congress. Um you know, you should, people are redeemable, whatever, but like, it's just, it's fascinating to me that that, that hadn't come up. She was, qu- she was quoting somebody. <laughs> she was quoting someone okay, else. So that's, yeah. that's a little, it's, that's a little different. Not great. Yeah. But a little Not different. great. Exactly. Not great. It, yeah, exactly. But this was like a, this was like a public appearance. Yeah. She was, she was, um, she was talking about, uh, I, I don't remember what she was talking about, but yeah, she was, she was speaking, she was being interviewed by someone talking about oh, wow. like another situation, um, and was quoting someone. Yeah, Joe Biden was just, has one of those too. He's a, uh, yeah. oh, he, he, he's got a reel of him. Man. Yeah. He's uh, he's on camera. I mean, I, I assume, I'm assuming. Well, no, like, well, that's the thing. Like it's not taken alone it's not disqualifying like it's it's questionable it's disturbing but it's not disqualifying but like you take it with all of these other things and it's just like what like why like why does it like there's so many other viable people running for congress that you know are new and young and fresh and like don't haven't voted for years to like increase juvenile criminal penalties it's just like you know yeah i had no idea how bad she was i mean i learned a lot from your article um, and, and uh, yeah, just uh, the list of things that you got, you, you came up with is incredible, including, um, she supported putting CIA agents within the police force, which stuck out to me. Um, uh, I mean, CIA, not, not FBI, CIA. Yeah. Like what, what's yeah. the point of that? Yeah. You know, if you, if you want to look tough on crime, there are people who, this is a, this is a campaign strategy, right? Like this is, mm. this is a, this is a, it's, it was a long time. Many people, Kamala Harris ran on this, you know, when she was running for district attorney, like these are not on, sorry, not on putting FBI agents in the, in the police, but like, but you know, people, who, people who have since changed their tunes on criminal justice reform have campaigned on being tough on crime because they knew that it pulled well. They know that like, you know, they're especially in areas with high rates of crime, that that's something that people listen to and, and attach on to. Obviously, that has changed as people understand that policing does not decrease crime in any meaningful way. Um, so, but yeah. Right. Yeah. She, she called in your article reports this, she, that she, she said of Joe Biden's uh, crime bill that it was the best news for New York City to come out of Washington since before Ronald Reagan took office. <laughs> That press conference, they showed up with like uh, weapons, like to to like they they were just like, hang on, let me let me pull it up in this in this. Yeah, piece. the one I, with Giuliani, right? Yeah, yeah, um, just crazy. And it's like it's not it, it wasn't even. I mean, it was you know in 1994. That's not that long ago. <laughs> like, man, I mean that that's something I, I've been I, I was thinking like throughout throughout reading all these articles, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's the same people. It's the same Democrats who are, are now like leaders in Congress and they just keep getting older and older and they just keep winning and like nothing changes. And like, um, you know, Crowley was not that old when he, when AOC took him out, but he, he, he would have been one of these people in like a decade or 15 well, this years. This is what I'm saying, um, man. The party is like, it's so important. Like for the left, like, 
for I mean for changing Congress, it is like the, you know like like Jamal Bowman's race. Like if he wins, that that is going to like be really important. I think for the party, for the for the progressives in the party, because you're you're getting rid of the chair of a major committee. Well, also and and for the party, because if the party keeps going on this trajectory, I just don't know. Like and maybe this is maybe this is me being I you know opti- I guess optimistic, but. The party can't continue if it's so out of touch with its with its base, and the base is changing. The Democratic base is changing now. There is a there uh, there is a possibility that it the Democrats become the party of the white suburbs, uh, like the old Republican Party. They they become the you know the white suburban party of of affluent um, of affluent like liberals who are conservative on economics, and as the as the frame sort of shifts and be, and and into this more like social and economic justice paradigm, they become a, a more conservative party. But I don't think they can survive as long as the Republicans exist. And you've got this this new left emerging. They sort of have to go left. They cannot continue to to be the party of uh, the center. It just doesn't seem like a yeah, we'll valid long term yeah. strategy. But then again, they you know they got Biden as the nominee. Right. They so they well well this year they may they may win the battle and and ultimately end up losing the war. But I think your point is underscored even in like the VP discussion right now, right? Like the fact that they are so committed to picking a woman of color that they are going to pick someone like Kamala Harris over Elizabeth Warren probably just speaks to the under like they don't understand what people want or, or not that they don't understand. I don't really think they care what the, what the, the growing voice in the party is calling for. So yeah. Well, I, they think I, that they, they, I mean, they're, they're embracing identity politics and they're, they're saying like, even though actually Warren did better among black voters in the primary than Harris did, they're both, let's, let's, uh, uh, <laughs> But, um, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, like they, they think, oh, well, she's Kamala Harris is black. So of course, like the black voters are going to just come out and vote for her. It's like, maybe the substance matters too. And like, she's, she's a, a horrible prosecutor from California. Like, I don't, that's pretty, pretty tone deaf. If you ask me like to, to make her the VP now during, during this black Lives Matter. Oh, there's so, then um, there's so much. I'm, I'm a little worried that if they pick Harris and then, and then somehow Biden does not win. Um, I mean, I'm never going to hear the end of it. Because, because of all the work I've done reporting on Kamala, like all the videos and stuff. Oh God, it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Please don't pick Kamala Harris. <laughs> like, just don't, just there. don't well, do it. Well, it's not going to be it. I love, I love Klobuchar. It, it, it was, it was just like when Angle said, "Oh, I'm not going to seek the New York Times endorsement" because he knew he wasn't going to get it. When <laughs> Klobuchar said, "Oh, I'm not going to seek the vice president anymore because it needs to be a woman of color." After like she, her chances were completely eviscerated during, like, because of the George Floyd protests and her and her horrible record um, as as a prosecutor herself and 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 just her her lack of uh, having any support from really people of color. It's just funny that like the all. Democrats somehow end up with. Um, a tough on crime ticket. They don't, they, they like can't, they can't see a, a different way of doing it. Like instead of, I mean, locking himself into a, picking a woman was, I think, misguided. Um, especially when, when you had the, the, <laughs> the candidate who most obvi- obviously would have united the party, who had the most, de- you know, actually won delegates, won state contests. 
I don't think it's bad that they said, I don't like, I understand why they said it, but it's just like, don't say anything because right. then you don't put yourself in a bind. Yep. You can pick a woman. Yeah. You can pick a woman of color. Just don't say anything. Like it's, it's so performative and people see through it. I think that's what's frustrating. And also the fact that they're thinking like Kamala is like, you know, at the top of their list right now or floating around the top of the list is even more ironic because the one time that she actually confronted him on a race issue that wasn't really, you know, using identity politics to like, you know, counter progress, which is what they're doing now, was him confronting her on busing. And Jill Biden took such personal offense to that, that like they didn't even want to consider her for VP. And like, that was a story that was floating oh, yeah. around for such a long time. And then finally they were able to like quash it in the New York times. And now Kamala is like back on the list, but like, that was a huge blow that like almost took her out of the running, which is crazy because of the substance of right, it. And it like now that was what they're using moment. her for. Yeah. That was her, yeah. that was her best moment. The, the donor class didn't like her, right? Where she, she pointed like out, she's that. like, government yeah. has a role in, in, in doing in, 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 you know, yeah. in, do, in breaking I mean, this so barrier. I, 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 I think it, honestly, I, I didn't have a problem with, with Biden saying that he's going to have a woman vice president. I think that's um, the right thing to do. And I, I, I think it's okay that he said it, but, but also keep in mind that he has a pretty checkered uh, uh, history with women and being creepy and allegations. So I think like, that's probably part of the reason why he went out and said it. Cause he's like, I need to like stamp this out. I mean, obviously they assassinated the character of, of a credible rape accuser, um, but you know, he, I feel like because it's, again, it's his, it's his weaknesses that are making him do the, or at least possessing him to do these things. He's also really, yeah. obviously, there's the crime bill history. So, but they're picking, but their, but their options now are two women in law enforcement. Like that is, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. You're, you're at a time when the grassroots, the mobilized grassroots, are out yeah, there saying right. defund the police, abolish, abolish the police. You know, the, and Val Demings was a police and, chief. I didn't even yeah, know that until and, the and, other day. And you're 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 going between the you know the the tough on the the tough on truancy uh, prosecutor and then the police the police chief. Like how how out of touch can you be? Well, he doesn't even Biden, you know, turned around after weeks of defund the police protests and said we're going to give three hundred million dollars to the yeah. cops and wrote verbatim. Federal dollars should not go to departments that violate people's rights or turn to violence as a first resort. But I don't support defunding the police. <laughs> it's that's a complete oxymoron. Like he just doesn't. They just don't care. And like they know just, that they're they not going to things to change. Trump is Trump is like running attacks on Biden now, saying he's going to defund the police. So like obviously he's going to be like, I'm not defunding the police. Like, but that's the game that they've gotten themselves into. And it's like it's just really it's not a it's not going to end well. Well, but yeah, no, but by not you're not owning the issue because on, on the one hand, like Trump has captured, Trump has a monopoly on people who are like, fuck the protesters and, you know, support the, the thin blue line people. Trump's got a monopoly on them. Biden's not going to be able to touch that. So he could at least recognize where the energy is and give lip service to it. But instead it's like, I, I don't know. I, I really, there's a reason his campaign had almost had basically failed by South Carolina. And I think we're seeing that play out. Like he's got horrible staff, horrible advisors, and well, apparently they're still like really they're they're really slow on getting uh, like state chairs and stuff. I mean, they're staffing up the states. They're still re they're really behind on it. Um, 
and I mean, it's not like they don't have a lot of time on their hands to like work on things like that. They may fail their jobs. way into office in November because of because of Trump's incompetence. That's that's uh, you know, and then and then of course if they but if they don't adapt, like what are they going to do when they don't have Trump to point to? This is this is what I mean, and this is why I keep going back to this. Oh, wow. What are they going to do? How are they? That's a great point. God, what? Yeah, what are they? And like the Russia thing is going to have to like sizzle out eventually. They can't. I mean, they can't keep these candidates can't keep alleging that they're targets of Russia. I mean, uh, maybe Russia will interfere again, and it'll be a, be an issue. But like, uh, but like, what, where does it? What does the party? What does the party do when they don't have a boogeyman to point to and say like, well, this is this is why nothing is getting done. And and you have you go back to well, tough on crime, a mobilized, <laughs> yeah, or they or they'll just they'll go back to, to punching uh, punching the left. Th- like yeah. remember 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 the alt left that Nira Tandon created. But I don't think um, they can like that could come back. But I don't think they can like that. That party can't survive in a in an ecosystem where you already have a far right, where you already have a right wing party, and then you have a mobilized left. Like that party is on borrowed time at that point. At least that's 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 how I see it. Like we we may be looking at the creation of a new a, a new political organization in the next ten years. I think Philadelphia, or maybe it was Pennsylvania, had like more independents than Republicans for the first time like ever this mm-hmm. past year. Um, so I mean, there's evidence to back that up. Like people are just going to be atrophying from from I, maybe not from the left or not maybe not from the democratic party but right now but like i assume that's probably what will start happening well, that's a good that's a good point because i mean i think uh, you know in 2016 well i know i mean trump won he he won the majority of the independence but that's that's it's kind of shifted to the other way around now um so i mean that's you know that's that's i guess a, a good sign for the left but um i think we should probably uh we should probably wrap this up uh i i'd be remiss if i didn't mention another interesting race in new york for congress it's the 15th district which we're not going to get into now but um it's another open seat uh there's a lot of candidates uh a lot of progressive uh folks have co- coalesced around um Samalise lopez who is um, who grew up in New York City's homeless shelter system? Uh, she's she's uh, a, quite a leftist. Uh, she got the AOC endorsement, and um, Katie Halper had a great interview with her on her show recently. So I'd encourage folks to go to the Katie Halper show and listen to that because it's it's really good. Um, the Intercept also has has a couple of stories on, on her in that race. Um, but uh, this has been super informative. Thank you so much, Akela, for coming on, and, and thank you for your articles, which are just knocking it out of the park. Thank you both for having me, Alex and Walker. This has been super fun. Thank you. Hopefully you'll come back on and join us again. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks. That's it for this week's free Gilded Age episode. Stay tuned later this week for a premium episode with special guest David Moore, the co-founder of Money and Politics news website Sludge. Subscribe to Gilded Age on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash gildedage, for access to this and all future premium episodes. This podcast was produced by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Voice acting by Rabia Altabani.